The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This week, I'm Caroline Hyde. This podcast is some of our favourite interviews from the Daily Market Close Show that I co-anchor along with Joe Weisenthal and Romain Bostic. What do you miss? It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. Now, I have just put the CEO spotlight on Chevron Chief Executive and Chairman Michael Wirth. Mike has been at the company since 1982, he's a lifer, and has been at the helm since the beginning of 2018. Now, we had such a wide-ranging interview, tackling his outlook for energy demand and oil prices in the year ahead, amid, of course, the pandemic, as well as M&A possibilities, climate change, the future of alternative energy, and government regulation. Now, I spoke to him back on December the 4th and started by asking Mike, about his long tenure at Chevron. What is it about the company that keeps him, well, so addicted? Well, it's interesting. When I joined the company, I was looking for uh, challenging work around good people. And, um, and what I found when I got to Chevron is the work was fascinating and the people were even better than I could have imagined. And so it's a company with a culture, a commitment to doing the right thing, and extraordinarily talented people. And of course, our industry sits at an interesting intersection of economics, uh, the environment, and the economy, and, and geopolitics. And so uh, every day, the, uh, the issues, the challenges, and uh, the opportunities in our business are, are evolving, and they're big, and they're important to the world, and it's just a, it's a, it's a fascinating place to work. I can't wait to talk about all those different worlds in which collide under Chevron. And, and what's so interesting is also the place that Chevron now finds itself. Um, the fact back in 1982, you'd see yourself as, well, now the biggest publicly traded American oil company out there. What do you think about the market value, the, the investment proposition you now offer shareholders? Well, we try to uh, talk to our shareholders about a differentiated value proposition. We have uh, offered a very consistent approach through uh, good times and through difficult times. And certainly this year has been an illustration of the latter. And uh, we've been very consistent with our financial priorities, with our strategy, with our commitment to our dividend, which um, most of our shareholders look to the income from our dividend as part of their retirement plan. And so uh, we've uh, been able to remain very steady as others have had to change strategy, change dividend, uh, change financial priorities. And for us, it's, it's been a pretty simple promise of higher returns, lower carbon, and you can count on us. Count on you. And within that, of course, becomes the focus on how to weather this storm that 2020 has provided and the oil industry continues to go through. And the long-term capital spending that you're having to pull back on a little bit, you're responding to the slump in oil prices. You're responding to the expectation of how oil is changing the environment in which you were in. How do you see oil prices evolving at the moment? Well, we're in a market that uh, still has demand that is, is well off where it was pre-COVID, primarily uh, air travel, but also in places like uh, the U.S. and Europe where there are restrictions in place and people aren't moving around. So, so demand is, is down. 
and, uh, and there's plenty of supply available in the market. And so prices reflect that. And we expect prices will continue to reflect that until those two come back into better balance. And I think they will. Certainly we've seen good news on the vaccine front, and I think 2021 looks to be shaping up as a year where there will be steady progress against the pandemic. And I think it will end much better than it begins. And I think as people begin to move around, we'll see demand return. The excess supply will better match uh, up with demand. And I think at some point then we'll see prices start to reflect really what it takes to reinvest in our business to meet future demand. Talk about that reinvestment. What are the priorities there? It, time is nigh for a big company such as yourselves with the financial strength potentially even to make the most of it, do some M&A. Do you see that in your forward thinking? Well, we've, we've done one deal this year with a company mm. called Noble Energy that was a, a very strong company. And uh, together, we're, we're better than we were before. There's certainly other opportunities out there. We don't need to do uh, a deal. As you mentioned, uh, you know, we're a large company in our own right. We have plenty of things uh, that we can invest in that are within our current portfolio. So one of our criteria is anything we would do would have to make the company stronger and it would have to attract investment in what is already uh, a set of assets that we're prepared to invest in that are very good. So it would have to make us better. We're going to stay very disciplined with our capital uh, spending and uh, we'd look at a deal if it would uh, would compete within our, our portfolio. That discipline you speak of, I mean, it's just now that we see how you're responding to the slump, you're looking at your capital spending going forward. Talk to us about where you think the biggest opportunities are. Is it about the Permian Basin right now? It is about closer to home. Is it about ever getting back to a million barrels a day over there? Well, volume is not uh, our primary criteria. We're trying to create value for shareholders and strong cash flows to, uh, to support our business going forward. The Permian Basin is an attractive uh, asset within our portfolio high returns, short cycle, very flexible. And so as, uh, as we look at our capital uh, priorities, it, it fits very well. But we've got good assets around the world. Uh, we're finishing off a very large project uh, in Kazakhstan over the next few years. Uh, and as that project uh, completes, we've got additional capital spending then that will move into other unconventional opportunities in Argentina, in the US, in Canada projects in the deep water Gulf of Mexico. So our portfolio is rich in, uh, in good opportunities for investment. You talk about how you see demand hopefully coming back, particularly as we all have our hopes set on a vaccine from personal reasons to business reasons. Talk to us about your idea of where oil demand goes. Are you abiding by this talk of peak oil demand? We've got BP saying it's gonna be this decade, Total saying it's gonna be by 2030. Do you abide by that sort of train of thought? Well, we think eventually uh, the world is likely to level out in terms of demand, uh, but there's seven and a half billion people on the planet today. By 2040, there will be nine billion people. Most of them don't live the way we do in, in developed economies. And their aspiration for a better quality of life, uh, for a better future for their children, uh, is a very human uh, longing. And that will drive economic development and demand for energy of all types, not just oil and gas, but other types of energy. And we see that uh, continuing to go out uh, a number of decades. Interesting. So not, not on the 2030, 2040 bandwagon, but talk to us about the evolution, therefore, of not just depending on oil, but other types of oil and other types of energy. We've seen over in Europe a big sort of transition. This moment in low oil prices has meant a focus on, well, the low carbon fuel types. Are you sticking with fossil fuels? How do you see your evolution at Chevron? Well, fossil fuels are at the core of our business and long have been. Uh, 
But we've also uh, long been involved in other things. We've had wind and solar in our business for a number of years. For most of my career, I've been involved in bringing uh, new fuels into uh, tests in markets. In California, where we operate, uh, there's a lot of uh, interest in, in so I, I've put in natural gas uh, refueling stations, methanol, electric vehicle charging stations. Uh, we've been in all of these things. We're investing in uh, other technologies, other energy technologies, where we think we bring unique capabilities and skills. Uh, we've not chosen to go into things such as wind and solar, where there are strong, well-established uh, players today that investors can invest in and that can develop these, and we don't really have an advantage. So uh, we intend to uh, undertake things where we think our unique set of technical operating uh, and financial capabilities allow us to do things that are large, complex at scale, and things that aren't necessarily um, easily done by others. And, uh, and we think that will expand over time to include new things, that, businesses that we're not in today. Can you give us an example of where you're seeing success in some of the new areas? Sure, I'll give you a great example. This year we began selling renewable natural gas here okay. in California. Renewable natural gas uh, comes through partnerships with dairy farmers. And um, if you've ever been near a dairy farm, uh, there's a certain aroma that, that you might have <laughs> noticed. And uh, what we do is we capture the methane that uh, is otherwise going into the atmosphere. Methane's a very potent greenhouse gas. So we keep that from going into the atmosphere. We then process it and clean it so that it can go into a pipeline and be used as a, as a fuel for transportation and displaces uh, fossil fuel natural gas. Uh, so we've got a number of partnerships underway. That business is growing rapidly for us. Uh, we're investing in renewable diesel where we will uh, next year begin processing soy oil in one of our refineries to produce renewable diesel. And we also make lubricating oils. Uh, that are, are used to lubricate equipment and engines and things like that. And we are producing that from renewable feedstock. So there's a number of these things that, that we're doing today and, uh, and we look to do more in the future. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline, it's teamwork, and it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. I also spoke with Mike about Chevron's commitment to clean energy and combating climate change and how he, as CEO, has balanced its responsibility to both shareholders and the environment. I asked Mike if he's feeling pressured to join an increasing number of companies that have pledged to achieve net zero emissions in the future and if those corporate targets are realistic. Well, the, the Paris Agreement, which we, we support, sets out a trajectory for, for uh, reduction of greenhouse gas emissions over time that would put the world on a, on a path towards net zero in the second half of this decade. 
our actions to date have been very competitive with others in our industry. In fact, uh, we're well below the industry average and all the companies like ours uh, are in a relatively tight band and mm. progressing to reduce emissions. Uh, we favor actions over pledges. And so long dated pledges where we really don't know how we'll get to the end of the road are something we've been a little bit uh, careful about. But instead, we're taking near-term actions, we're setting targets, we've built it into our compensation system, we're investing capital to reduce emissions today, and, uh, and we'll continue to do that and set tough targets, hold ourselves accountable, and be on a pathway that is in the same general direction as all the others in our industry. How have you built it into a compensation package? So our uh, bonus program has uh, targets, four targets for reduction in greenhouse gas emissions uh, associated with oil production, gas production, methane, and flaring. Uh, we also have targets related to renewables and offsets into our business and for investing into new technologies. All of those are part of my compensation and I'm evaluated every year by the board of directors against those targets and those same targets apply to most people in the entire company. So we've, we've moved this out to our entire workforce as part of what we hold ourselves accountable to and what affects pay. So it's sort of ownership, basically, from the base level of every single employee. What about the other stakeholders, the, the investor base? How much are they leaning on you for this? How, how have you seen your investor base sort of change with wanting to see a more a cleaner fossil fuel kind of a business and one that is seeing such developments in biofuel and methane and the like? Well, it's a topic of conversation with, with all of our investors, and that is a change. A few years ago, uh, this came up only from a few. This is a, a frequent topic, oftentimes the first topic uh, with, with many of our investors now. And uh, our message to them is we want to do things that are good for the planet and good for shareholders. And we could over-index on one or the other, and I think that's what investors test for. If we, if we did only what was good for shareholders and we ignored the environment, that's not sustainable. And investors don't want to invest in a business they believe is not sustainable. That said, if all we did was focus on things that are environmentally uh, progressive and we didn't care about dividends, about shareholder returns or shareholder value, that's not really sustainable e either. That will run out. And so investors test to say, do you have a balance? Are you going to respond to my financial needs and my concerns about sustainability? And so it's a, it's a very balanced discussion that we try to have and we need to find ways to do both. It's funny that... Uh was it Darren Woods over at Exxon sort of called it a beauty competition to a certain extent. Do you feel it is competitive amongst those in big oil in the US to try and sort of look further ahead or how do you try and cut out the noise and ensure that you're just doing what's right for your business? Well, I, I talk to all the CEOs in the US and, and, and around the world about this and I think everybody is trying to achieve the same things. We're trying to be part of the uh, response to the world's concerns about this issue people are going about it differently. And, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I think if we were all doing the exact same things, I would, I would worry about that. Mm. Uh, but different companies have plotted different strategies. They're invest investing in different technologies and they are trying to find different solutions. I think that is, uh, is a more um, hopeful way for us to all be working on this. The, the issue of climate is too large to be solved by any one company any one industry, any one country. It, it is truly a global issue and it will require partnerships and collaboration uh, across uh, the global economy. 
And, uh, and so I think there's lots of room for different people to take different approaches. And uh, those that work best, I think, will be rewarded by investors. I think companies will learn by watching what one another do. And, and collectively, that's how we will uh, we'll make progress on this very important issue. I mean, you've already outlined how global your footprint is, but inherently your home base is California. We can see it by the beautiful weather behind you. And, and California is sort of at the epicenter of what has been the fight for climate change. Not only have you had a health crisis this year, we've also had in wildfires to add to the mix. And how, how do you find being based in California and the rhetoric coming out of California and, and in general, some of particularly the progressive and the Democratic Party, is a blessing or a curse for your business? Well, I, I think it's um, it's a reality. I try not to characterize it quite uh, in, in either of those two categories, but it's our home. It's been our home since 1879, and we've grown with California, and we've uh, learned with California, and we've been a partner with the state as it has moved uh, in a very progressive manner on a number of uh, environmental fronts. and. Uh, we have great relationships with the regulators in this state. Uh, we have good relationships all the way up to the top in the political side of things. And um, we may not always see things the same way, but we, we, we work together to try to advance uh, the priorities of society. We provide good input, technical, economic input, and, uh, and it's been a positive uh, relationship. I think you could say the same for some of the European companies who have mm. similar kinds of dynamics in their home countries. Uh, that uh, that collaboration over time makes you better, and it also helps the uh, the politicians understand the realities of the the energy economy. Do you think it helps to be more innovative as well? California being the home of you know big tech, Silicon Valley. You talk about some of the projects that you've had in terms of methane there. Do you think California helps in that way? I, I think it does. Uh, but I'll say, I, you know, we have a lot of people in Texas, for instance, where there's a number of countries or companies in our, our industry. And there's tremendous innovation uh, in, uh, in the Houston area. Uh, th this country, the U.S., is really blessed with um, a, a creative set of dynamics in our economy that makes it really the most innovative country in the world in, in so many different ways. And, uh, and we see innovation coming out of partnerships we have with universities, with national labs, with startup companies. We've got a big venture capital company that invests in new ideas and uh, entrepreneurs that, uh, that have a, a flash of genius. And oftentimes that flash uh, ultimately doesn't materialize, but sometimes it does. And so uh, we, uh, we try to engage outside of our traditional boundaries uh, to see the art of the possible and, and to advance our business every day. I'm always fascinated by those sorts of VC parts of the business. Is that to eventually potentially just partner with the companies that you invest in? Is it to just make sure that you're in, involving yourself in these conversations? Is it to buy these sorts of companies? Probably not to buy them because, mm. uh, you know, very large companies like ours, we've learned, uh, operate in, um, in, a, in a mature manner uh, that uh, brings with it a whole host of things as a publicly traded large uh, enterprise. Uh, startup companies have uh, a unique culture that um, sometimes is not compatible with that. And so we invest, uh, we have seats on board, sometimes as an active participant, sometimes as an observer. Uh, but we really want to provide capital. Uh, we want to provide advice. Uh, we want to provide markets and test beds where these technologies and ideas can be brought into the real world and the uh, scale up from bench to pilot plant to real world application. Uh, might fit into our business and we can help prove out some of these ideas. And so it's really uh, in pursuit of a synergistic 
uh, kind of a, an effect with these companies as they grow and hopefully we become a, a, an investor, a partner, a customer, a supplier. Those relationships can take many different forms when these companies succeed. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Now, with the transition to the Biden administration already underway in the U.S., I spoke with Mike about the political climate in the United States and the new era coming to Washington and the impact on the energy sector. I asked the CEO what the change in the White House would mean for Chevron. Well, you know, it's certainly been a... um, It's been a challenging year politically in this country, to say the least. And uh, uh, the the new administration is just in its uh, early formative uh, phase right now. So uh, I I, I can't really comment specifically on that as much as I would say uh, we've been around for over 140 years. We've operated under um, Democratic administrations, Republican administrations, uh, split government, unified government through economic cycles, political cycles. And what we've found is that there is common ground always uh, that we can find with, uh, with any government in this country or another country. And uh, governments want to see economic development. They want to see prosperity for their people. Uh, they want to see a cleaner environment. Uh, the kinds of things that are a priority, uh, irrespective of party, are the things that we believe in as well. And so that's where we begin our conversation is at common values, common ground, and then what the priorities are of the administration and what we can do to help them advance those priorities. And while we never have 100% alignment, frankly, probably with either side of the aisle, there are more things we can agree on than that we disagree on. Are you expecting more regulation? I think we, we, we are. I mean, I think the, uh, you know, the you know, Vice President Biden has made it clear that he intends to uh, take some of the regulatory agenda in a different direction than we've seen under the current administration. And, uh, but, but my point, Caroline, is we've seen this before. We, we've mm. dealt with it before. We've got relationships with all the regulatory agencies and the professionals in those, um, you know, those organizations. And uh, this isn't anything new. It's something that we are prepared for because it's part and parcel of, of our business. The employee base at the moment, it's been, you talk about a difficult political year that it's been in the US. It's been a, a difficult year for all your employees, no matter where they've been based in the world with health, economic strife, social strife. How have you dealt with that as a leader? How have you given comfort to your employee base that you know their jobs are secure or, or if indeed they're not, you're able to reflect that and be upfront? Yeah, so uh, it has been a very challenging year for employees. There, there's no doubt. Uh, maybe the hardest year that I can remember in, in my entire career. 
Uh, the first thing that we've done is to make sure our people uh, are safe. And at a time when uh, this pandemic has been raging, uh, we stood up a pandemic response team uh, before the World Health Organization declared a global pandemic. We had a pandemic response plan. We had regional and local teams stood up in 50 different locations around the world in the month of February uh, responding to this already. And so I think our people see us uh, moving quickly to ensure their, their health and safety, number one. Number two, uh, communication is so important. And we need to tell people what we know. We need to be honest. Before the pandemic arrived, we had embarked upon a restructuring of our company, recognizing that uh, the outlook for commodity prices in our industry is one that is probably lower for longer, and our cost structure was unlikely to be competitive as we move forward. And there were some things in our culture that we wanted to advance uh, through making some changes. So we had already conveyed to our organization that we would be restructuring, and that would have an impact on, on job levels. As we went through it, we, we communicated with people at every step of the way, and we provided uh, broad support for transitions. And this is not just in terms of separation payments, but it was extended health benefits for people that were concerned in this kind of an environment. It was help in uh, skills in job search and placement. Uh, so a host of things for those who, who were going to be transitioning out to really help through that transition. And then, of course, the final thing is, uh, is to show empathy. Uh, these are our friends, these are our coworkers, these are good people, and, and the changes come through no fault of their own. Uh, they're the realities of our business and what we have to do for the most people, the most stakeholders. And, uh, and just not to lose that humanity as we go through this is really important. Showing empathy is so important in the moment, particularly as we've seen the social side of the crisis that has been here in the United States and globally, to be perfectly frank. And this has been sort of a coming of, of age for diversity, for inclusion, but not just the lip service of it, but the real diversity and inclusion. And it's notable some of the steps that Chevron has taken. I mean, you, you have plenty of women on the board. You just added another one, Marilyn Houston over from Lockheed Martin. How you're also... It, impressing in terms of LGBTQ as well and you're in an LGBT 350 list from Credit Suisse and you're in fact ranked rank number 35 among the publicly traded companies within that. How do you do that as a business leader? How do you ensure that you're walking the walk not just talking to the talk and, and can breed this sort of environment where someone such as yourself stays for almost 40 years? Well it's part of the culture and the ethos of the organization it has been for a long time. I can go back to uh, the era of apartheid, and we were one of the first signatories to the Sullivan Principles, which opposed apartheid in South Africa. In the 1990s, we offered same-sex health benefits to uh, partners of employees before any industry was doing. We were the leader in our industry, and frankly, among most companies, we were one of the very first to do that. So we have a history of leaning in on these kinds of issues and, uh, and really being a leader. And, and I talk to our current leadership team about this is our moment. We look back at what those who came before us did to respond to society's expectations, not to resist them, but to be part of building uh, a better world and a, and a better society for our people and, and for our communities. And so we talk about that a lot. We focus on inclusion. Uh, I uh, recently was with a group of employees talking about talent and gender, and, and I reminded them that, that, that talent is a, it's not gender specific, it's a unique human gift. And we have to look 
for the special human in each person that, that is in our company, not look at them through some lens of gender or ethnicity, but their own unique value. And so that begins with the board. Well, we've got a very talented and very diverse board. It runs down through our leadership and our entire organization. Historically, this has been a um, engineering-centric, kind of white male-oriented industry. That's changing, and our company has changed dramatically. And we've seen real strides where our workforce now looks much more like uh, the rest of the world, and that continues uh, to be a very high priority for me. That's kind of amazing as a white male in the form of leadership that you are and trying to ensure that you've kept this ethos going. What, why do you think Chevron got with the program so much earlier? Why do you think they understood the value of diversity? You know, I can trace it back to a, a document in uh, the 1920s in our company that I keep on my desk. And it's called the Standard Oil Spirit. And it was written by the then president of the company. And he talks about the importance of the relationship between the company and the employee. Now, this is in the days where uh, union busting was prevalent, where a 40-hour work week was not standard. Mm -hmm. And all the way back 100 years in our history, it has been very important that we have uh, a, a partnership with, with our people and we treat our employees with respect. And so it's been part of our DNA for, for, for more than a century. And, uh, and, it, and it puts a heavy burden on uh, the leaders of the company today to uphold that tradition. And it sets the bar high where you say, we not only have to maintain it, but we have to improve in our generation with the issues that confront society today. We need to continue to be a leader. And, uh, and so it's just part of who we are. You say already your employee base reflects sort of what America looks like right now, what the globe looks like right now a little bit more. How do you ensure that continues? How are you, particularly at a time where there is economic issues, people of color, women being held back in the labor force, but also perhaps not being able to get to the university at the moment or get the skills they need to come and work for a Chevron. How do you ensure that your pipeline is going to be secure to continue to reflect what the rest of the world looks like? Well, first of all, let me be clear. We, we're not where we want to be. We're, we're, mm. we're increasingly looking like society, but we still have work to do. We've made a lot of progress. At senior levels, when I first became an executive, 18% uh, of our senior uh, uh, part of our organization were visibly diverse. Today, we're at 44%. So we've made a lot of progress, uh, but there's more progress to be done. Uh, a couple of things. As we went through the reorganization that I mentioned earlier, uh, we had inclusion counselors in every one of our people selection meetings. These were not people who knew the jobs and the individuals and were able to weigh in on uh, the best match of talent and, and position. They listened for unconscious bias, for language that would suggest that not everyone was being equally considered. And they were empowered to stop a discussion and say, wait a minute, here's what I'm hearing now. Are we really looking at all the people the same way. So we've, we've, we've looked to do things like that. Uh, we publish our, um, our, our visible diversity statistics to our entire workforce, which creates real accountability because there's some places where we've made more progress than others. And people say, look, this, this looks great here, but what about over here? And then that puts some emphasis on it. And when you talk about the pipeline, uh, we work at all levels. Uh, so higher education, uh, we this year uh, announced uh, increased support for historically black colleges and universities. Uh, with scholarships, mentoring, uh, putting senior executives into relationships with these schools so we can do better recruiting. Uh, and then we work down through the K through 12 education level as well to encourage girls that are good at science and math 
uh, to find role models, to see careers where those skills can actually lead them to a fun and interesting job, as opposed to thinking, well, the boys are the ones that are good at math and science, and that's not where I should go, even though I love it. Uh, you have to nurture that, that love in a young child and show them that they can take that and they can be incredibly successful and the world offers them all the opportunities that it does uh, you know, a young boy. Did you have mentors? Did you have role models? Have you been a role model and have you got mentees? How do you, how do you think those sorts of relationships evolve and are born and are maintained? Yeah, it goes back to my childhood and my parents, first of all. Uh, and then when I, when I began working, uh, my first three supervisors at Chevron were women. And they were three of the best bosses I ever had. <laughs> and, um, and, and at the time, I thought this was normal. And it was only much later in my career when I realized that was very unusual for me to have experienced that. And, and as I moved into positions of more responsibility, I realized that things don't change unless somebody tries to make them change. And so I uh, learned that I had more responsibility to really push for this change. And, uh, and over the course of my career, I've had many role models and mentors. And I try to have those kinds of relationships with, with people across our organization. I wish I could do it with everyone, um, and, and that's not feasible. But I, I do have uh, special relationships with people, and that evolves over time as they move through, through their careers, and I, as I do through mine. What about you and yourself and, and how you keep your mental balance, how you keep your relationships outside of work as well going? I know you're very keen in, in sport and you've actually involved sport in some way to be how you evolve your pipeline as well, right? Uh, certainly. We, one, one of the things I mentioned, we uh, try to engage young people in making math and science fun. Uh, we have worked with uh, different sports teams or, or things like the, the Professional Golf Association to show how technology and science are part of sport. Because oftentimes children find sport very fascinating. And today, as you look at uh, you know, Bryson DeChambeau on the PGA Tour, changing the way golf is played with technology and science and an understanding of these things, we try to bring some of those principles to young people and show them that uh, these things can be fun and, and how, they, uh, how they can lead into uh, a career in sport or a career in something else. Uh, when it comes to how do I, uh, how do I balance things, uh, I'm fortunate to have uh, a wife who's a great athlete. She uh, was a Division I college athlete. I've got a daughter who was the same, and, um, and then three sons also who are very active outdoors. And, and that's certainly when I get time where I would like to be is outside with my family doing you know, skiing, uh, you know, diving, playing golf, hiking, camping. Uh, we spend a lot of time outdoors, and uh, and that helps me balance the uh, you know the things I have to do at work. How fascinating! One thing, Mike, you're excited for for 2021. I'm optimistic about 2021. This has been a very difficult year for so many people, and uh, for those of us that are fortunate enough to have jobs and situations where we could better uh, survive these challenges. Um, I think we need to really have some um, appreciation in our hearts for those that are less fortunate. I think the, um, the prospect that vaccines are increasingly now likely to shift the trajectory of this uh, pandemic in the new year is terrific. And then I think around the world you see uh, political leaders who have committed to helping rebuild economies, which will help create um, opportunity for those who have lost opportunity through all of this. And so I, 
I, I don't think 21 is uh, the year when it's all behind us, but I think it's the year when the, the path begins to move in a better direction. I think 21 ends in a much better place than it begins, and I think it sets up uh, for more progress as we go forward. And so I'm, I'm optimistic that 21 will be a year that is much, much different than this one we're closing out now. And that's it for What You Missed This Week. If you like the show, make sure you subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts. You can catch our show weekdays on 4.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a very good weekend. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.